From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Monday, June 11th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The U.S. says that a new massacre could be imminent in Syria, and it delivers this warning to Syrian commanders. The international community can and does learn what units were responsible, and you will be held responsible for your actions. Also today, in India, discrimination based on caste is still widespread, though many Indians think it's a relic of the past. The general public in India basically thinks that it's over. There's this message of progress. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There is mixed reaction today from world markets to the latest European bailout. Never mind that the recipient, Spain, doesn't want to call it a bailout. Over the weekend, Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy accepted $125 billion in loans to prop up Spain's teetering banks. He agreed to accept that amount. Now, at first, the markets reacted positively, but then investors got nervous about Spain's ability to repay its mounting debts. The world's Jerry Haddon has more from Barcelona. Prime Minister Rajoy was adamant in a press conference yesterday. The billions of dollars Spain stands to get from Brussels is not a bailout. It's a line of credit, he said, from Europe, with the objective of reestablishing the solvency of any banks that need it. That would be at least a third of Spain's banks, according to the government. Ganó la credibilidad del proyecto europeo. Ayer ganó... With this deal, the credibility of the European project won out, Rajoy went on. The future of the euro won, as well as the solidity of our financial system. But best of all, he said, the money comes with virtually no strings attached, unlike loans to save Greece, Portugal, and Ireland in recent years. In those countries, the International Monetary Fund, Europe's Central Bank, and the European Union, known as the Troika, directly intervened as part of the rescue. Today, however, European officials contradicted Rajoy's boast. The Troika will, in fact, keep close tabs on how Spain spends the money. All of this has left ordinary Spaniards feeling confused and angry. Spain's current crisis has complex origins, but banks play a big role. During a decade-long construction boom, they lent money willy-nilly, sometimes for projects that seem to make no sense, such as airports in the middle of nowhere. This morning, outside the Barcelona office of one bank set to be rescued, a 75-year-old retiree named Ángel Gil said he was furious that no one stopped them. Our banks lied to us for 10 years, he said, and I mean they really lied about the state of their finances. And the former government didn't check into it. Somebody should have raised the alarm. Gil said if the banks couldn't be trusted to make wise investments before, he doesn't trust them to pay back any European rescue loans now. We, the Spanish people, are going to end up footing the bill, he said, because ultimately the Spanish government is responsible for the loan if the banks can't handle it. By afternoon today, market analysts were echoing Gil's sentiments, and Spain's borrowing costs spiked again. As one analyst put it, 
The weekend bank rescue may have fixed an acute problem, but the chronic problems persist. While Spanish Prime Minister Rajoy was trumpeting his deal in Brussels yesterday, he said he understood what those chronic problems are. Este año será malo. This year is going to be bad, he said. Our economy is forecast to shrink by 1.7 percent. Unemployment is going to go up. There's no sense denying it. Unemployment is already at 25 percent in Spain. As it rises, more families will likely default on their mortgages, which is fueling even more anger. Because in Spain, you can't just hand in the keys to your house, to your bank. The debt doesn't disappear, and your kids can inherit it. Last week in Madrid, about 30 families who've defaulted stormed a branch of a bank called Bankia. Bankia is the poster child of bad real estate investments. This protester said the bankers should be tried and jailed. What Spain needs is a bailout for the people. What Spain most needs is to get its economy growing again and fast, says Kathleen Brooks. She's the director of research at the currency trading service Forex. If government coffers continue to dwindle, she says, no loan or bailout or whatever you want to call this latest deal will be big enough. It was very much a bailout for the banks, not a bailout for the unemployed. And that essentially could actually make the bank situation worse, or certainly the the government situation worse. Because, of course, you know, as the unemployment rate remains so high, they've got to use a greater proportion of public finances to pay things like unemployment benefits and welfare payments. The banks may be sorted for the moment, she says, but these big social problems will likely weigh on public finances further. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Chileans of a certain age remember all too well their economic troubles. Recession gripped Chile in the 1970s and 80s. Unemployment hit 20 percent. Those were also years of political turmoil in Chile. A military coup in 1973 ushered in the military dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet. Today, the memory of the late Pinochet still divides Chileans. And a new film that casts Pinochet as a national hero sparked clashes in the capital, Santiago, yesterday. The world's Alex Galifant was there and saw how the opening of this documentary became such a lightning rod. What did you see, Alex? This was the scene at the center of Santiago yesterday, a a movie theater in downtown Santiago. And here you can hear supporters of the legacy of General Augusto Pinochet shouting, uh, long live Chile, long live Pinochet. Um, Beyond them, at the end of streets, blocked off by uh, police, more demonstrators, but these ones, most of them young Chileans, opposing the glorification of General Pinochet. And you can hear at this point, this is later in the morning at about 11 o'clock yesterday, a police truck moving in and spraying protesters with a a mixture of uh, water and and chemicals that makes the eyes itch and water and stings. Alex, can you explain why this particular film set off such a demonstration? Well, remember that General Augusto Pinochet was... A dictator who took power in a military coup on the 11th of September 1973. He held control in Chile for 17 years. He died in 2006. But, you know, for many Chileans, he is nothing less than a monster who presided over the murder of thousands of his political opponents, the torture or exiling of many thousands more. But for the people at the movie theater to see this documentary, he's been maligned by the media and by public opinion over the years. And for them, he was the savior of Chile, the man who defended Chile from communism in the early 1970s. They also say that he is responsible for some of the economic policies that have led to Chile 
being a relatively successful economy in, in Latin America. So what about the film itself? Why is it being released now and who produced it? It's produced by an organization of retired military officers and by a group called the September 11th Corporation, named for the date of the coup in 1973. And why now? Well, Chile, remember, saw huge protests on the streets last year, student-led protests about education reform, and that really was a watershed moment for the country. Thousands of people out on the streets demanding changes, and in this socially conservative country, that was a huge shift. And we're now seeing other groups feeling confident to make their voices heard, no matter what extremes they come from. Environmentalists, students, and and here, loyalists to the memory of General Pinochet. Uh, So you have people in the theater yesterday who are waving pictures of Pinochet, who are applauding wildly his grandson, who took the stage at one point to speak. But I wonder if these people represent an emerging pro-Pinochet segment of the population. I mean, is is his reputation being changed for the better in Chile? I don't think so. I mean, the, the, the social memory of what happened during those 17 years is not in any danger of being lost. That said, there's an ambiguity when it comes to his legacy. Um, he didn't stand trial before he died in 2006. He, he died while he was under house arrest. And so for people who didn't grow up with direct knowledge of Pinochet, there's room for interpretation. Some young people see supporters for Pinochet out and waving placards, shouting slogans in support of him, and wonder, well, there must be a reason for it. And, you know, that's something that the demonstrators are keen uh, to stamp out. Thank you. The world's Alex Galifant speaking to us from Santiago, Chile, which was the scene of demonstrations yesterday outside the screening of a documentary, a pro-Pinochet documentary called Pinochet. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thanks, Lisa. The past is very much on people's minds in Mexico, too. That's because the party that dominated Mexican politics for more than 70 years, the PRI, is poised for a comeback. Mexico holds its presidential election on July 1st, and the frontrunner is pre-candidate Enrique Peña Nieto. Now, opposition to his campaign has inspired a student protest movement that some have dubbed the Mexican Spring. It's called Yo Soy Ciento Treinta Dos, that is, I Am 132, It's named to support the 131 university students who are vilified for speaking out against the leading candidate. The movement held a big rally in the Mexican capital yesterday, and reporter Miles Esty was there. An estimated 90,000 people packed the streets of downtown Mexico City for the rally against Peña Nieto. From talking to the protesters, like Jose Eduardo Zaragoza, You'd think Peña Nieto's Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, was the current ruling party in Mexico. We urgently want a change, and that is why we're here. In fact, the PRI has been out of the presidential palace for 12 years. But its seven-decade one-party rule, from 1929 to 2000, is still resented by many Mexicans. And at the local level, the PRI is still in power in many Mexican states. So when Peña Nieto promises to be a different kind of pre-president, there's a lot of skepticism. Saúl Alvidrez is an organizer with the Yo Soy 132 movement. Despite what they say about it being a new PRI with a new face, for us it's still the same PRI, same PRI of repression, lies, and authoritarianism, and a PRI that members of this movement are not ready to accept. 
The 132 protesters are also critical of Mexico's mass media, which they accuse of favoring pre-candidates and manipulating the political environment. The issue heated up recently after an article by the Guardian newspaper in Britain presented documents alleging Peña Nieto had in the past paid for positive TV coverage. This type of collusion emblemizes the corruption built into the PRI, says Marcher Jose Eduardo Zaragoza. We don't want a candidate created by the TV stations. We want a real democracy, one where the media itself is democratized and tells us the truth. Yesterday, after the protests, a Yo Soy 132 crowd watched the second and final candidates debate on a big screen in Mexico City's Central Plaza. This was their reaction as Peña Nieto made his opening remarks. We don't want you, they jeered. But Peña Nieto held his own in a debate with few hard questions. Despite the protests against him, the pre-candidate still enjoys a sizable lead over leftist Andres Manuel López Obrador. He lost the 2006 race by the narrowest of margins, something he wishes not to repeat. Yo Soy 132 organizers know they have an uphill battle. Just three weeks remain before the vote. But they're determined to keep going. For the world, this is Miles Esty in Mexico City. More news and our geo-quiz coming up. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. India is a country that's changing fast, yet it is still known for its rigid caste system. Members of India's lowest class were traditionally called untouchables. They're now known as Dalits. Despite the name change and laws to protect the Dalits, they still suffer widespread discrimination. Now a group of volunteers is gathering video evidence of that discrimination to try to end it. Natalia Antalava has the story from the Indian state of Haryana. These videos show a man who complains that a local barber refuses to cut his hair. A group of children who are forced to eat lunch separately from their classmates. Women who walk for hours to fetch water because they're not allowed to use the public tap in the village. None of the footage on its own is particularly dramatic, but it documents a persistent form of social discrimination untouchability. Dalits are the untouchables. Amit is a Dalit. He's also one of 65 video volunteers currently documenting examples of untouchability for a campaign called Article 17. It's named after the constitutional provision that banned caste-based discrimination in 1950. But for Amit and millions of other Dalits, very little has changed. Being Dalit is like having a stamp. It's always with us. When we apply for jobs or colleges, we have to show which caste we belong to. That's when the discrimination starts. Here in Haryana, we the Dalits are being tied to trees and beaten by the upper caste people. No one stands up for us. 
Amit suggested we go see his friend, another Dalit named Vimal. Most Dalits never get out of poverty, which is why Vimal's house is not what I expect. It's new and spacious, testament to the fact that some Dalits have benefited from India's economic growth. But Vimal says right after his family arrived, a mob of upper-caste neighbours attacked the house. And as more Dalits moved in, upper-class neighbours moved out. They can't handle us having money or education, Vimal says. India's caste system is deeply rooted in Hinduism. Across India, especially in rural areas, people are still born into their caste and occupations. And even if a Dalit scavenger could afford to open a grocery store, an upper-caste customer probably wouldn't touch the produce or even shop there. But untouchability is rarely covered in the media and gets little attention from India's urban middle class. The general public in India basically thinks that it's over. There's this message of progress, right? So every year, the average metropolitan Indian thinks that the world, India, is just getting better and better. Jessica Mayberry is the American co-founder of Video Volunteers, the group that launched the Article 17 campaign. She admits some things are better. There are laws protecting Dalits, and Dalits have worked hard to increase their political power. Several states have even elected Dalit chief ministers. But those Dalits who make it out of poverty are few and far between. That's why Video Volunteers is preparing to file a lawsuit in India's Supreme Court based on the video evidence they've gathered. They want the government to take steps to stop untouchability practices even when they don't involve violence. They need public awareness campaigns to end untouchability in the same way that the government's public awareness campaigns have been very successful in things like getting people to have two children in terms of domestic violence in urban areas. Those kinds of public awareness campaigns have been successful. But some Dalits say they need more than that. Vinod Sonkar is a professor of law at the New Law University in New Delhi. He says the discrimination he faced as a student was so deep and painful that he often considered quitting. Today, he's the only Dalit professor at his university. He says nothing will change until more Dalits are helped through the system and have full representation in the media, police, government offices and the courts. When there is no representation, we can't expect for justice. So the whole constitution has made mockery of you're still being uh, excluded and marginalized systematically. It's a very systematic and very conscious effort to keep the Dalits deprived of, uh, of the, the mainstream of the nation. One of the videos from the Article 17 campaign shows a group of Dalits trying to make a ritual donation in front of a village temple. But members of the upper caste block their way and throw away the offerings. Policemen stand by and watch. Ahmed is the one who shot the video. It's from his village. I ask him to show me the temple. So we follow you guys? Yeah, yeah. Ahmed and his friend get on the bike. We follow in the car. But instead of stopping at the temple, we park in an alleyway behind it. Ahmed leads me to a friend's house. Everyone looks nervous. Finally, they explain. There are some upper caste people there, they tell me. They're too scared 
to enter the temple. For the world, I'm Natalia Antalava, Haryana, India. We have much more online. We've got stories and interviews on how caste is changing in India and among Indians here in America. It's part of our series Beyond Class. To hear and see more, go to theworld.org slash beyondclass. That's a vintage ad for Maggi seasoning, the salty brown condiment that's chock full of MSG. Well, last Friday we ran a story on how immigrants around the world think of Maggi as the taste of home. No matter where they come from, they claim it as their own. Well, apparently a lot of you feel the same way. Many of you posted your personal memories of Maggie at our website. Peter Hess says the story made him homesick. His grandparents and great-grandparents lived in Switzerland, the part of Switzerland where Maggie was concocted. He writes, to add another wrinkle, Julius Maggie, the man who invented Maggie seasoning, was the son of Italian immigrants to Switzerland. To this day, Maggie is pronounced Maggi in Switzerland, the Italian way. Valerie Smith-Koenig describes herself as a Maggie fanatic from childhood. She writes, in Hawaii, which is an amalgam of cultures from around the Pacific and Asia, it's almost universally available in every food store and in most restaurants. We also heard from Adunyahu Abjoy, who writes in to say he is Nigerian. He says he thought it came from there. Well, not to be left out, people here at the world in our newsroom had their own ideas about Maggi. My colleague Marco Werman says he remembers Maggi from West Africa. One producer says she thought it was Indian, and our editor says he grew up thinking it was Mexican. If you've got memories of Maggi, let us know. You can post your comments at theworld.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the Irish musician whose story became the movie and the Broadway show once. One Oscar and eight Tony Awards later, Glenn Hansard is staying true to his busker roots. It's not about living in a huge house or living, you know, or, you know, I mean, all those things are great or having a fancy car or whatever. It's about playing in front of people who actually care to listen. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The U.S. State Department says the Syrian government may be preparing to carry out more massacres in opposition strongholds. Spokeswoman Victoria Newland says Syrian authorities appear intent on keeping United Nations monitors out of certain areas, among them the town of El Hafa, near the country's Mediterranean coast. You are seeing Joint Special Envoy Kofi Annan making a direct appeal and trying to bring this potential massacre to light before it happens, asking member states to do the same, which is what we are doing here, based on the witness that monitors outside of the town who are trying to get in are giving to him. Newland also warned Syrian officials that they're going to be held accountable for any massacre that does occur. The violence in Syria has spilled over into neighboring countries. Over the weekend, at least seven Lebanese and Syrian citizens were kidnapped along the border between the two countries. The tit-for-tat abductions were reportedly fueled by tension over the Syrian uprising. The aid group Refugees International believes some 76,000 Syrians have fled into northern Lebanon. Ben Gilbert visited with some of them. 
Noor is a 20-year-old woman in a colorful headscarf who used to study education at a university in Homs. Now she's one of 5,000 Syrian refugees here in the northern Lebanese region of Wadi Khalid. She lives in a drafty concrete elementary school with her family and about 50 other people. She and most of the other refugees have been here for over a year because it's too dangerous to go back home. She says anyone who tries to go back dies or disappears. They killed my brother, she says. He came here from Syria to see our mother, and when he tried to go back, they killed him. He was shot. The regime also arrested two of my uncles, and they disappeared, and now we don't know anything about them, she says. Noor asked that her name be changed so that someday she might return to her hometown, a place called Tel Killa, just a few miles across the border from Lebanon. When the uprising began, many in Tel Killa joined it. Fighters and weapons flowed across the border. So it wasn't long before the Syrian army moved troops into the town and began shelling it. Most of the inhabitants fled. Another refugee named Sa'ar, who also didn't want to give his full name, says the Syrian military has now effectively sealed off the border. They planted a lot of landmines along the border, he says. A lot of people have had their legs blown off by the landmines, so now no one crosses, he says. Now, the only route out of Syria is through the one legal border crossing in the area. But Syrian soldiers and border guards demand bribes from anyone wanting to leave the Tel Killa area legally. A woman named Rakat had to pay. Rakat and other women pass the afternoon smoking a water pipe as their children play in the school hallways. She says she paid a $100 bribe to one of the Syrian army commanders in Tel Killa to let her and her family flee. He didn't do it out of the kindness of his heart, she said of the army commander. If it was up to the Syrian army's kindness, then they wouldn't let us out of the country. Syrian refugees and Lebanese who work with them in Wadi Khalid say they've heard the Syrian military can charge up to $1,000 or $2,000 to get out of the Tel Killa area and enter Lebanon across the legal border crossing. Not all of the refugees from Tel Killa fled to Wadi Khalid. Some, like Ali al-Kurdi, have found refuge along the main coastal highway north of Lebanon's second-largest city, Tripoli. He and his family are better off than most. They can afford a modest apartment with furniture. But they can't go back to Syria for fear of arrest, detention, army conscription, or death. Kurdi's oldest son is already detained in Syria. His other son can't return. Several of my friends were forced to enter the army, says Kurdi's 19-year-old son, Zaid. We haven't heard anything from them since they took them away. Zaid Kurdi says the Syrian government is intentionally conscripting young men from towns that have rebelled. He says he's heard stories of soldiers being forced to fire on their own friends and neighbors. You either have to defect or fire at the target you were told to fire at. If not, they'll shoot you in the back, he says. His father, Ali al-Kurdi, pulls a book off his shelf and puts it on a coffee table next to another book. This is the Bible, this is the Quran. He says no one should fear the uprising except the current regime. He says Sunnis, Christians, and Alawites, members of an esoteric Shiite brand of Islam, will all prosper in a post-Assad Syria. 
President Bashar al-Assad is an Alawite, and his regime often paints supporters of the uprising, like Ali al-Kurdi, as al-Qaeda or Sunni Muslim extremists. We are a moral revolution. This is not a revolution of Sunni Muslims against Alawites. We love the Alawites, Ali al-Kurdi says. But it's looking harder and harder to contain sectarian hatred. After the recent massacres in Hula and near Homs, more Syrians in and outside the country say they are growing angry with the Alawite militias, the Shabiha, who are allegedly responsible for a list of atrocities. On Thursday, UN Special Envoy to Syria, Kofi Annan, warned of the possible consequences if the violence is not halted in Syria immediately. He said the country's future now consisted of brutal suppression, massacres, sectarian violence, and even all-out civil war. For The World, I'm Ben Gilbert in Beirut. The search is on for Amelia Earhart in today's GeoQuiz. The American aviator and her navigator vanished on July 2, 1937. Exactly what happened to them has been a mystery ever since. Earhart was on a quest to circle the globe on a 29,000-mile route along the equator. Some researchers believe that Earhart survived for a while as a castaway on a remote atoll in the western Pacific Ocean. It sure is remote. How do you get there? I always tell people, you go to Hawaii, hang a left, and go for about 1,800 nautical miles. It's way out there. Name the island that's way out there if you can. We'll be back in just a bit, and we'll talk to an aircraft recovery expert who's about to search the waters there for Amelia Earhart's plane. Let's hear about a modern-day female aviator now. Patricia Mowley is 23 years old. She's among the youngest pilots in the West African nation of Ghana, and she's also the first female pilot in the country. The surefire place to find Mowley is at the Kapong Airfield, where she's an instructor at Ghana's Aviation and Technology Academy. And if all this weren't unusual enough for a woman in rural Ghana, Molly's also an aircraft engineer. She teaches other young women from the Lake Volta region to build and fly ultralight two-seater planes. It's a traditionally all-male occupation, but Molly thinks that women have particular qualities that make them good pilots. We reached her on Skype. Many people consider aviation to be very risky An environment where women are seen as the wives who should look after the family. I actually believe there is a reason why God made women to be the people who deliver to children. Because women have more patience and are able to handle things in a much fragile manner. And Molly exercises that fragile manner herself in her volunteer work with Medicine on the Move. That's an organization that works together with the Aviation Academy to deliver medical services and health education to rural communities across Ghana. Molly transports medical supplies and doctors all around the country, and occasionally she drops educational pamphlets over remote villages. For jobs like that, I'm quite happy to jump into the plane and to take people, and especially sometimes they do medicine advice, like giving health programs, malaria, schistosomiasis, and things like that to the community. So they print it out, and I can fly and drop it to the communities. One of Molly's favorite places to fly is over nearby Lake Volta. That's the largest man-made lake in the world at 3,000 square miles. You can see some communities that are farming or fishing, and they are actually a bit isolated. And so flying overhead 
seeing how hard working they are lets me appreciate much more what my people can do. Most days are pretty busy for Molly. On the day we spoke to her, she had three teenage students eagerly awaiting a demonstration on how to construct wings for an ultralight plane, model CH-701. After speaking to you guys, I need to go back to the girls in the workshop and to continue building a set of wings for the CH-701. And so I need to go back in there because the girls are looking up to me to teach them how to build these wings. Molly hopes that women who see her from the ground below will be inspired to take to the sky themselves. We've got a link to a slideshow of Molly, including one photo of her gleefully in the cockpit. It's all at theworld.org. Our GeoQuiz today focused on the fate of American aviation pioneer Amelia Earhart. She vanished on July 2, 1937, while on a quest to circle the globe on a 29,000-mile route along the equator. Well, this July, Richard Gillespie is leading the latest expedition to find out what happened to Earhart and to her navigator. Gillespie is head of the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. He thinks Earhart survived for a while anyway as a castaway on a remote atoll in the Western Pacific. On this expedition, we're returning to Nicomaroro, the same island we've been to nine times before, and where we have found so much evidence of so many different types that suggest that this is where the Earhart flight ended. It's really not close to anywhere. When you're there, you are alone. What does it look like, and how does it feel to be so alone there? Nicomaroro is a tropical paradise to look at. Coconut palms and tall trees and beautiful aquamarine lagoon. The problem is it's an island that can kill you. It's hot, at least 90, sometimes we've seen temperatures over 115 degrees on the island. There's no fresh water. The water around the island and in the lagoon is... Shark City, black tip reef sharks are are everywhere. If you fall on the coral, you have an immediate infection. Unfortunately, there were no antibiotics in the 1930s. Now, the reason that you're spending so much time and effort on this particular island, Nicomaroro Island, which is the answer to the geo quiz, is that you're convinced that Amelia Earhart and her traveling companion spent some time on this island. How long do you think she was a castaway there? The evidence we've found at the site where the bones of a castaway were found in 1940, this castaway's campsite that has produced bottles and a zipper, a pocket knife, all things that speak of an American, oh, a woman's compact, things that speak of an American woman of the 1930s. The bones of birds and fish we've found associated with campfires there all suggest that she survive for certainly a matter of weeks, possibly a matter of months. You forgot the freckle cream. Oh, well, that's one of the bottles. Okay, we don't know for sure that it was a bottle, a jar of of freckle cream. We know that we have an ointment pot. It would be kind of cool if it was freckle cream (laughs) because we know she had freckles. But we always have to be very careful not to overinterpret the evidence that we find. Again, we have a number of artifacts that speak of an American woman of the 1930s, and we can only find one that's missing, and that's Amelia Earhart. So if your mission this time around is to try and find her plane, how do you do that with uh, ages of sand? Do you go down to the seafloor with some kind of submersible or, or what? The best way to search that craggy underwater mountainside is with side scan sonar. Now, this is deployed from something called an autonomous underwater vehicle, a miniature robot 
submarine. It looks like a torpedo. We will first make a map of the undersea topography. That's never been done at this island. Nobody knows in detail what it looks like down there, but we'll find that out. We're looking for shapes that suggest the presence of man-made objects. Once we have targets that we want to investigate further, we put down a different type of technology. This is a remote-operated vehicle, an ROV. This is a, a device that's actually tethered to the ship to check out suspicious targets, take photographs. Now, when if we have the opportunity to do a recovery, we'll do that with manned submersibles. I wonder what your you know interest is and dedication is to this and what it would mean for Americans if you do find the plane and do find out exactly what happened to Amelia Earhart and their navigator. This is what I do going on 26 years now. This is an important investigation, not only because so many people want to know what happened to Amelia, but I see this investigation as a way to demonstrate and explore how we go about figuring out what is true. There have been so many attempts and so many claims. There is so much myth. How do you connect the dots in ways that you actually find things? And we have been finding things for a couple decades now, but it comes slowly. It's difficult. That's what's fascinating to me about this whole Earhart riddle. We wish you good luck. Richard Gillespie, Executive Director of the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery in Delaware, heading out to Nicomororo Island. So nice to talk to you. Thanks, Lisa. Our global hit and more still to come. This is BRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. How long any of us will live is influenced in part by our family history. If you inherit good genes, you've got a better shot at reaching old age. No real surprise there. But a new study conducted in the Philippines adds an interesting twist. It finds that your life expectancy may be affected by how old your grandfather was when your father was born. The World Science reporter Ritu Chatterjee explains. Before we get to the new study, here's a bit of background on genetics. Inside our cells are strands of DNA, and on the ends of those strands are special structures. Anthropologist Dan Eisenberg of Northwestern University says you can think of these structures like the plastic tips at the ends of your shoelace. Those plastic tips keep the uh, shoelace from fraying and, and allow it to function properly. And those tips on our DNA, called telomeres, protect our genes. The problem is, as we age, those telomeres get shorter. Eventually, they get so short, cells can't divide anymore. In other words, short telomeres are a sign of old age. And in fact, they may cause some of the health problems related to aging. And that means being born with longer telomeres might slow your aging and extend your lifespan. But what determines how long those protective tips are at birth? It turns out that children born to older dads tend to have longer telomeres. And here's where we get to the new study. Dan Eisenberg and his colleagues wondered if this effect went beyond a single generation. 
Maybe if your grandfather had your father later in life, you would also have longer telomeres. So the scientists collected blood samples from young men and women taking part in a health study in the Philippines. And here's what they found. Having an older paternal grandfather would cause you to have longer telomere lengths. And these longer telomere lengths probably help you to have a longer, healthier life. Now, that last part about living a longer, healthier life, the authors of the new study haven't shown it yet. But it's an intriguing possibility. The new study is published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and Dan Eisenberg's colleague at Northwestern, Chris Kozawa, is also an author. He says the benefits of inheriting longer telomeres from older granddads may extend beyond the individual and into entire populations. After all, he says, people in many countries are having children at older ages and their offspring are living longer. Could inheriting longer telomeres be a factor? We wonder, might that actually contribute to the fact that we tend to see you know, longer lifespans now? It's definitely a speculation, but I think it's a possibility. Kuzawa says he's not advising men to wait as long as possible before having children. There are also negative effects of having children later in life. It's not clear if the benefits outweigh the risks. Borgen Nordisgaard also works on telomeres and aging. He's at the University of Copenhagen. He says the new study is surprising and exciting. But he says he'd like to see other studies replicate these findings. When you see uh, studies like that in one type of people that live on a certain conditions, it's always nice to see it repeated in other people living under other conditions, for example, like in the U.S. or in Europe. He says the role of telomeres in aging is an active area of research. So it won't be long before other scientists follow up on the new study. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Irish musician Glenn Hansard starred in Once, the movie, and a song from that film, Falling Slowly, won him an Oscar, too. Words fall through me and always fool me and I can't react. Hansard wrote that song with his co-star in the movie, Marquette Irglova. Well, both are now celebrating the Tony Award success of Once, the musical. The Irishman was at the award ceremony last night, where once hauled in a total of eight Tonys, including Best Musical. Both movie and musical were based on Hansard's own experience as a busker on the streets of Dublin, Ireland. That personal story could have gotten a glitzy Broadway treatment. Hansard knew that was a possibility. You know, it's like everything that's kind of happened to this in this with this story has been so magical that really everything after that was kind of gravy. And honestly, when, the, when, when I first heard they were, they were going to take this to Broadway, I have to admit that I was kind of horrified. And I, I, thought, I, thought this could, I thought this story is too delicate. It won't withstand uh, what I imagined would be Broadway treatment. But uh, everybody involved has been so sensitive to it. And, and so last night, when they kept on calling out the awards, it was like, oh, my God, this is a, like, amazing. It just it's kind of had a life of its own, you know. But, uh, but I, really, I really feel like it's theirs now. Is that kind of a loss for you? Because is it, is it out of your hands? And here you have the guy who, who you were playing in the film, who's a native of Kentucky, did a great job, won Best Actor in a Musical, Steve Casey. Uh, and it's not you up there. Is there is a little bit of a loss or not? No, geez, no, the opposite. The overwhelming feeling I had was just, wow, Steve, you know, you've, you've taken it his own direction and I'm just delighted for him. I, I, I couldn't be happier for the guy. So you didn't have any role in the play itself? Were you a consultant or anything? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I was consulting, and I remember suggesting to Steve early on that he that he sort of that he goes play on the play on the street because the character is a is, you know is a street musician, and I just thought it would be really good for Steve to have some experience in that area. And Steve took off in a, in his car and, and drove drove from New York to L.A. and stopped. And whenever he stopped, he took out his guitar. And in small towns, I think it was kind of easier for him to do it in towns he wasn't known. What did you tell him? What what was kind of the lesson? Well, if you're standing on a street, you know, and you, and, and, and you and you open your voice, you really should be hearing the reflection of your voice from the building across the street. That's really the the, the best way. That's really the way you should you know you should be hearing that echo. And if you're not hearing that echo, then you're not singing loud enough. And really, that was what it was about. It's just about if you can project your voice across a street, you're kind of doing something right. You mean doing something right to have money thrown in your guitar case or doing something right because that's the way the song should be portrayed? Uh, both, both. Because <laughs> if, you, if you can sing loud enough, then you can draw people to you. You know, but, but, but I have to say so much of what busking was always about was the mood you were in. It, it wasn't even about how good you were. It was about if you, if you walk onto a street and you've got green lights in your in your head, you've got green lights in your eyes, then generally speaking, you're going to make more money. But it's always the toss-up, you know, because if you focus on making money, it's like that that energy suddenly begins to shy away from you. So when you go and sing on the street, you really do kind of have to sing for the sake of singing, as opposed to for the sake of money. You know, Glenn, I can't help but wonder if, um, you know, if you wouldn't want to take home one of those eight Tonys. You know, honestly, honestly, and and I mean this with all sincerity, it, it, we won an Oscar. Like that was the most extraordinary thing that happened. In, and we, what the, what the Oscar really bought us was was it bought us an audience. And we had an we had an, we had a small audience to begin with, which was wonderful. And those people are thank God are still with us. But you ask any musician, what do they want? They want an audience. It's not about living in a huge house or living, you know, or you know, I mean, all those things are great or having a fancy car or whatever. It's about playing in front of people who actually care to listen. Glenn Hansard, we're happy about the wild success of Once, and uh, we wish you the best of success as well on your new album, Rhythm and Repose, a solo album due out next week. And we're going to close out today with Love Don't Leave Me Waiting from your new album. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's lovely to talk to you. You can see a video of Glenn Hansard and Marquette Erglova singing that hit song from Once Falling Slowly. It's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thank you for listening. Love, you've been hesitating. You've been hanging on for that sign too long. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI, Public Radio International.